Good morning, and uh, it's good to be with you this morning. I want to invite you to turn through me your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We'll be in uh, verses 16 and 17 today. Um, this morning, we're going to begin a new message series uh, called Fuel and Fire, where for the next uh, couple of months, we're going to be studying together the core doctrines of the Christian faith, what we believe, why we believe it, why it matters, uh, and what it means for our lives. And today, we're going to be looking specifically at what we believe about the Bible. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, whose voice you just heard, in that uh, short sermon video was a, uh, a British pastor from the mid-20th century, and he described doctrine and life as fuel and fire. Now, there's a little bit of a stigma surrounding the study of Christian doctrine and theology that uh, it's something that can just be dull and boring and dry and uh, be just disconnected from the reality of our lives. But doctrine, what we believe as followers of Christ, is the fuel uh, that stokes the fire of our lives. And the reason we start with the doctrine of the Bible is because the Bible is our source for all other doctrines. So if we don't have a reliable source to begin with, then uh, we're not going to have reliable doctrines to believe in. So we want to start this morning with what we believe about the Bible. And I want to do this uh, with just a little bit of an object lesson today. So I've uh, got my little table up here this morning and I'm going to have a little bit of group participation across the room here, and you're going to shout this out from wherever you're seated, but just uh, looking at this little round table up here, looking at the, the tabletop, uh, just from one side of the table to the other, about how wide do you think this table is? What do you think the diameter is? Somebody take a guess. How many? 24? 32? What else? Let's get one more. 18, okay, and, and where do we draw the, these answers from? You know, it could be uh, just a gut feeling. It could just be just, just based on what you think according to where you're sitting. It could be based on some past experience. Who knows, maybe you have a prior career as one who measured pub tables. That could be a thing, right? And, uh, and, but the only way we're gonna know the truth, the only way we're really gonna have a, an understanding of exactly what is right is by doing what? by measuring the table. Well, uh, fortunately this morning, like every completely normal person, I happen to have this small uh, measuring tape in my pockets. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna take this out. We're gonna measure it across uh, inches. We're not gonna do centimeters, right? Because as a wise sage once said, there's countries that use the metric system. There's countries who've been to the moon and we're the latter. So we're gonna do this in inches across today. And from one side to the other, we are right at 23 inches. Did anyone guess 23? Who guessed 23 in your head? We'll give you that this morning, right? You have our applause and respect. And the rest of you, it doesn't mean that we don't love you. It doesn't mean that we don't care about you. It doesn't mean that we don't want to listen to your feelings. It just means you're wrong, right? And, and that's, that's not about us trying to be mean. That's about us just simply saying, listen, this is the objective standard. And when we come to understanding the, the, the truth that we draw from Scripture, truth is not something that we subject just to our emotions and to our feelings. We need to pay attention to those things. They're very, very important, but ultimately they are not the final authority in our lives. Many of you maybe have heard Christians talk about uh, Scripture with this word canon, the canon of Scripture. And what that word simply means is measuring rod. The Bible is our measuring rod that we use to determine objective truth. And when it comes to the Bible, it is our objective standard for all matters of life, faith, Christian practice, and doctrine. So truth is not ultimately determined by our subjective experiences and feelings and emotions and just what we think and, and our own truth. It's not measured by this. It's measured by the objective standard of the Word of God. So what we're going to do each week as we, we work through this is one week at a time, we're going to take a single statement from our doctrinal statement. We're going to show uh, where that's anchored in Scripture as we uh, try to build strong foundations for what we believe as followers 
of Christ. So this is what our doctrinal statement says about the Bible. It says, the Holy Bible was written by men, divinely inspired, and is God's revelation of himself to man. I love this. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All scripture is a testimony to Christ who is himself the focus of divine revelation. So just to simplify that for us a little bit this morning, for those of you who have your your message notes, we'll be using these in your community groups later. Simple truth that we wanna center on today to break that down a little bit is that the Bible is a perfect treasure of divine instruction and Christ is the central focus of divine revelation. Maybe if have used the, uh, heard the word Bible used before as, as a bit of a clever acronym, B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. And, and that's, that's pretty clever, and it's, it's not wrong by, by any stretch of the imagination. But uh, while the Bible isn't less than that, the Bible is absolutely more than that. Because the Bible is not just a book that instructs us on what to do. The Bible is a story about what God, through his son Jesus Christ, has done for us doesn't just show us what it looks like to walk in right relationship with him. It shows us who God is, who his son Jesus is, and how we can be reconciled to right relationship with God. So here is where we see uh, that statement anchored from the truth of God's word. This is 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture, everyone say all. Now say all means all. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So we see first this morning from 2 Timothy 3 that all scripture speaks the word of God. All scripture speaks the word of God. It is God-breathed. Understand, the Bible is not simply what God has spoken in the past. The Bible continues to be what God is speaking in the present. And I think that's one of the great tragedies of of Western Christianity today is that we see the Bible primarily as a book to read and not primarily as a voice to hear. The Bible is the word of God that is still speaking to us today. It's amazing. I think sometimes we make this, uh, this idea of hearing God's voice. We've made it out to be some sort of, of unattainable mystical experience. Like, like to hear the voice of God, you got to climb you know, 10,000 feet barefoot up into the Alps and smoke a hookah and go into a trance for three hours. And then maybe you can hear the voice of God. And, and God's not made it that complicated for us. He's, he's given us a book. Like, like you can order it and have it from Amazon in two days. Don't even have to leave your home, right? He's he's so good. He loves us so much that he's preserved his words for his people today, not just in the past, but for his people today here. And we hear his voice primarily through his word. God certainly gets our attention through creation. God certainly gets our attention through, through circumstances, personal conviction. I think God can certainly get our attention through things like dreams and visions. But ultimately, God primarily speaks to his people through his word. If you want to hear the voice of God, you read your Bible. If you want to hear the voice of God audibly, read it out loud. It is the voice of God still speaking to his people. And not just some scripture, but all scripture. All scripture is breathed out by God. This means Old Testament. This means New Testament. 
while Jesus was here on earth, physically walking as God in the flesh, the Bible that he used what is, is what's known to us, the 39 books of our Old Testament. Jesus saw all of that as divinely authoritative and inspired word of God. But Jesus also promised that there was gonna be more that was coming uh, after he ascended into heaven and sent the Holy Spirit. So this is from John 14, verses 25 through 26. We've looked at this passage a couple times this year because I wanted us warming up to where we were going today. Verses 25 and 26. Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So what Jesus was doing in that moment was he was anticipating that his disciples were going to be writing down all of the things that he had taught them. So he'd been living with them, walking with them for three years, teaching them, and there was gonna come a time as he sent the Holy Spirit. The primary work the Holy Spirit was gonna do with the apostles was remind them, bring to their memory all of the things that Jesus had taught them, which are preserved for us in the writings of the New Testament. And we see the rest of the New Testament being affirmed uh, by the rest of the apostles as scripture. This is affirmed by Peter in 2 Peter 3, 15 through 16. He says, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our brother Paul also wrote to you to the wisdom given to him. So he's talking about the writings of the apostle Paul, which were circulating to the churches. And I love this. Verse 16, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. This is what Peter has to say about Paul's letters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Doesn't that just make you feel so good that Peter, who's the apostle upon whom the church was founded, basically was telling all of these believers, say, hey, heard you're reading Paul's letters. Good luck with that. Some stuff in there that's difficult to understand. He says, and this is what happens, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So that's Peter affirming the writings of Paul as scripture. We see this again. This is Peter, uh, Peter affirming the writings of Paul as scripture. Then you see Paul writing uh, uh, himself affirming the rest of the New Testament as scripture. This is 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18. Paul's writing to, uh, to Timothy, he's a young pastor. He says, let the elders who rule be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Uh, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Now that's a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 25. So this is Paul affirming the authority of the Old Testament, but then he also quotes this, and the laborer deserves his wages. Now that's a quote from Jesus in Matthew 10 and Luke chapter 10. So this is Paul. Once again, he's affirming Old Testament and New Testament as scripture. All scripture has been breathed out by God. So there's three really distinguishing characteristics of scripture that we would affirm from our doctrinal statement we would uphold as a church family. First, that scripture is inspired. Scripture is inspired. All scripture is breathed out by God, or you could also translate that, has been given by inspiration of God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's inspired. Second Peter 1, Peter writes, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. So how did we get the scripture? Peter, Peter tells us here, this, uh, <clears throat> for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
So yes, it was men who were writing these words down, but the way the scriptures were written is that God used the unique personalities and vocabulary and thought processes of human writers to record exactly what it was he wanted recorded. The Holy Spirit superintended this entire process. And this is what's amazing about the Bible. It makes it unique from any other religious text. It's written down by dozens of authors in different geographical locations across multiple millennia, most of whom never even met each other, and yet it may maintains this single unified cohesive message from start to finish, which personally I just believe is only made possible by God who sovereignly superintended that entire process from start to finish. They're able to keep the same message because they've been inspired by the same spirit. So we believe that scripture is inspired, that God oversaw this process. We also believe that scripture is infallible. What we mean by infallible is that scripture will not mislead us in any way or cause us to fail. It is totally true and trustworthy in all of its instruction. The book of Proverbs says this in Proverbs chapter 30, verse five. It says, every word of God proves true and he is a shield to those who take refuge in him. So on the flip side of that coin of the word uh, infallible, we also believe that scripture is inerrant. These words are sometimes used, are, are used interchangeably. Because scripture is inspired, it is infallible, it is inerrant. Psalm chapter 12, verse six says, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Now, out of all three of these words, this is definitely the one word that causes the most controversy. Because uh, you, you look at the Bible and if you, you isolate different verses, there are some verses that just at face value might appear to be uh, making statements that are in error or even contradictory to what we might find in other places of Scripture. And when we say without error, what we're saying, we need to understand first and foremost this morning, Scripture's without error in its original manuscripts. Now, you hear that this morning, you're like, well, Taylor, we don't have the original manuscripts anymore. And this is true. We don't have the original manuscripts of Scripture, but uh, we go back to August 25th. Back in the fall, I shared a message about why it is we can still be confident uh, that Scripture has been accurately transcribed across all of the centuries. So uh, we have today uh, substantially more biblical documentation than any other historical document from antiquity to be able to show that God's Word has been accurately preserved across the generations. And, and honestly, when you take the New Testament in particular and compare it to any other historical document, it is embarrassing uh, how much more New Testament material there is uh, than virtually anything else. There's over 5,600 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament text. And while those originals aren't there, the ones that we do have, many of them are just within a few decades of when the originals were written, which means they were written at a time when eyewitnesses were still alive, or at the very least, when disciples of the disciples, like Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, they were still alive, and they would have been able to determine if error was being uh, transcribed from one piece of Scripture to the next. Now, um, if you compare that again to another ancient historical document in terms of the number of manuscripts available, over 5,600 for the New Testament, the next closest uh, would be the Iliad where there's only 600 manuscripts available. And in terms of, of the time frame when it was written, that was written uh, roughly 1200 BC. And the earliest fragment we have is from a clay tablet that's dated around the third century AD. So it was 1,500 years later. So again, if we want to reject the scripture on the grounds that it's not been accurately translated across the centuries, then in order to remain academically and intellectually honest, you also have to reject every other historical document from antiquity. Because what we have with the New Testament, how it's been transcribed across the centuries, uh, it's, it's vastly greater than any other ancient historical documents that's been handed to us. So we believe the Bible when it is rightly interpreted. Okay, this is very important. 
when it's rightly interpreted, will not affirm anything untrue or contrary to fact. That's what we mean by inerrancy. I want to give us one example this morning. That This is a common passage of Scripture that's typically attacked to say, hey, this, this is abundantly clear then that Scripture has within it errors. So Joshua chapter 10. Joshua is fighting along the nation of Israel at Gibeon, and he has a very bold prayer that he prays in that moment in order to extend the battle. Anybody know what the prayer is? What are the three words he prays? Sun stands still. He prays for the sun to stand still. And the scripture says the sun stood still at Gibeon as uh, they continued to fight. So uh, now it's true that the church for many years used that verse to try to justify the claim uh, that it was the sun revolving around the earth and not the earth revolving around the sun. And, And so many would look at that and say, you see, that's in error because the scripture says the sun stood still and we know that that's not actually what's happening. Well, let's just call a time out here for just a second. What was the intent of the biblical writer? What was the intent of the biblical writer to make a scientific claim about the position of the earth and the sun? Or was the intent of the writer to simply record what Joshua said? Was the intent of the writer to make a scientific claim? Or was he simply just saying in common everyday terms, the exact same way you and I would talk, something that Joshua said and occurred? Because even with what we know today about uh, the movement of the sun and of the earth, we still use language like this. We say that the sun rises and does what? It sets. But is it actually the sun rising and setting? No, it's not. It's the earth turning on its axis as it makes its revolutions around the sun. And yet we would not call anyone a liar. We wouldn't tell them that they're in error for saying that the sun rose or set at 6.43 or 7.42 in the evening, whatever time it is. Wouldn't claim someone's in an error. So what what Josh was doing there is he's speaking just in common vernacular, scriptures recording in common vernacular, the phenomenon of what happened. By some major phenomenon, the Lord caused the daylight to be extended so that the battle could be continued. He's not intending to make a scientific claim. So again, you've got to understand context. We have to understand what was the, the intent of the author? Because if you just isolate one piece of scripture away from the rest of scripture and, and you try to make contradictions work, it, it just, you, you can't just pull things out one at a time. So we believe that the Bible, it's hard to do sometimes, but we absolutely believe the Bible when it's rightly interpreted, when it's considered against the full context of the whole narrative of scripture, uh, it is without error and that all scripture speaks the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. All scripture has been breathed out by God. It's been breathed out by God. And Paul writes that it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training and righteousness. So all scripture speaks the word of God, and we believe that all scripture shapes the worship of God. Scripture speaks God's word, and it shapes our worship of him. Understand this morning, contra uh, the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church, the Bible is not a product of man. The Bible is not a product of the church. It is not the church that formed the Bible. It is the Bible that forms the church. From the beginning of creation, it has always been the word of God that forms the people of God. This goes all the way back to Genesis 1, that God speaks man to existence, and how does he bring him to life? By breathing in his breath. And then in the nation of Israel, God forms the nation of Israel by giving them his law, by giving them his word. And then uh, the church is founded on the word and the teachings of Christ. The word of God has always formed the people of God. And so the early church councils who affirmed the canon of scripture were not the ones giving the Bible its authority. Their work was simply to recognize what was authoritative, what was already being circulated and as having authority over the church. And uh, this isn't in your notes this morning, but 
Uh, there were a number of, of documents in existence back in the second, third centuries as the early church councils were coming together that claimed to be scripture. And so in order to determine what was scripture, what wasn't scripture, the, the councils came together and they subjected each scripture to a number of tests. And Norm Geisler has uh, noted there were five tests of canonicity that were used to determine uh, what was true scripture. The first question they would ask is, uh, is it authoritative? Does it claim to be inspired? Does it have a sense of thus saith the Lord uh, in its writing? Second, uh, is it prophetic? Was it written by a spiritual leader? So was it written by a prophet, by a priest, a king, a judge, a scribe, uh, or in the New Testament case, an apostle? Third, is it authentic? Meaning, is it consistent with the whole of scripture? When you compare it against other scripture that's been uh, accepted as divinely inspired, does it say anything that contradicts that? And if it does, it should not be accepted as true scripture. Fourth, is it dynamic? Does it carry with it? Does it demonstrate a sense of life-transforming power? Fifth, is it received? Is it just being accepted and used by the believers uh, as Scripture? So the church was not giving the Scripture its authority. The church was simply recognizing Scripture that was already authoritative. The Word of God has always formed the people of God and not vice versa. And because all Scripture has authority, Paul writes that it's profitable. It's useful. It's beneficial. It means your whole Bible, everything that you have in your Bible, it's useful for several things. Paul says that Scripture teaches. This is what we're using it for this morning right now, right? All Scripture teaches. It instructs us. It provides us with the foundation of doctrine. Scripture reproves or rebukes, Paul says. I mean, sometimes, like, praise God, right? The, the, the Word of God just, just tans our hide, doesn't it? I mean, like we, we hear it and it, it just can every once in a while just offer us a, a blistering rebuke that's not necessarily exciting to hear, you know, not necessarily what we want to hear, but probably what we need to hear in that moment. But, but, but what's amazing is that scripture doesn't just rebuke us, scripture corrects us. It doesn't just show us where we're wrong, it also shows us what's right. You'll find as you read through the scripture, very seldom do you find a command to not do something that's not followed with a command to do something. So God doesn't just tell us what not to do. He wants to replace those sinful actions with holy actions and not just tell us what's wrong, but to reveal to us what's right. Scripture trains us in righteousness. It trains us. So it, it instructs us, it teaches, it rebukes, it corrects, and it trains us in righteousness. It gives us everything that we need to know to faithfully know Jesus Christ and to faithfully follow him in this world. This is why we talk about Scripture not just being a book of instructions. It's, it's not just a field guide. It's not just a manual for how to live our lives in the here and now and what it is that we can do to get to God because that is not Christianity. Christianity is not ultimately about what we do to get to God. It's a story of how God has come to us. And it's revealing to us what God through his son, Jesus Christ, has done for us. For everything that Scripture gives us, the very best thing it gives us is it shows us how to be saved. It shows us how to be reconciled into right relationship with God. It reveals to us the perfect son of God who came to this earth, who lived the perfect life that we could never live, who, who didn't just die for our sin, but lived for our righteousness, who conquered the grave so that we could be free from both the power of sin in, its, in our lives and free from the penalty of sin in death. This is what it reveals to us and reveals what God has done for us in his son, Jesus Christ. Church, this is why you gotta understand, this is why we should never look at the study of doctrine of theology as anything that's cold and dull because what needs to happen, this is how you can know that true doctrine has truly taken root in your heart. And this is important for us because a lot of us know these things in our head. If the doctrine in your head has never led to doxology in your heart, you've not believed. 
You've missed it. You've missed it. If we can't come to the word of God and see what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and it never move us to any sort of action and never infuse our hearts, then we have to ask the question if we truly know it. And that's always just been my desire for, for our church family is that we would not be a bunch of big-headed Christians with empty hands who know all the right answers, but don't live it in our world and don't believe these things in our heart. It's always been my desire that we would be like the, the reformers who, who, I love the language that they use. They wanted to worship God with inflamed hearts and informed minds. And one always leads to the other. The deeper you dive into this word, the deeper you dive into who God is and what we believe about him, the more your mind is informed, the more your heart should become inflamed. And we start asking this question, how can I not respond to this God in worship? Doctrine is the divine fuel that feeds the fire of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? Verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, I really identify with, with the letters of First and Second Timothy, the book of, of Titus in particular, because these are the, known to us as the pastoral epistles in Scripture. And this is Paul, who is a, a seasoned veteran. He's apostle of the church, and he's writing to his, his protege, Timothy, who's a very young pastor. And, and what he's trying to do is give him a framework for how the church should be governed, how it should be structured, how to deal with various conflicts that arise. But as you read through First and Second Timothy, there's one refrain that's echoed over and over and over again. And it is Paul working and challenging Timothy to root his total confidence in the word of God. And this is Paul telling Timothy right here, Timothy, listen to me. These scriptures, this is all you need. This is all that you need. This will complete you. This is going to equip you for every good work. This is Paul trying to root Timothy's confidence in the sufficiency of God's word. So don't abandon this and don't add to this. It's sufficient and it's complete and it's authoritative. And church, this, this is so important to us this morning. This is why we start with the foundation of the word of God, because you, you look across the Christian landscape in our culture today, and listen, I'm not throwing shade at anybody. This is true of uh, both evangelical Protestants, which would define us, and also mainline Protestants. When, when you look at the rapid decline of a number of denominations within our culture today, this is one characteristic you will find in common of those who are plummeting right now. And it's that they have gotten to the place where they've denied the authority of the word of God. Just, just go do the research. Ed Stetzer's done, done this research through, through Lifeway and a couple of other groups. Uh, there, there are a number of denominations today that based on the current decline they're facing as they've departed from the authority of scripture, there are a number of denominations right now, mainline Protestant denominations in particular, that following the current decline and trend, they have 20 Easter's left before the denomination dies. That's a real number. I'm not pulling that out of a hat this morning. Look at the, the current steep decline that they're falling down right now. And it all starts when we abandon the authority of God's word. Church, the moment we do this, just set the, just set the countdown timer. We, we, we've dug our own grave. We root ourselves in the authority of God's word and we trust that God's word is sufficient. We trust that God's word is enough to make us complete, that it will equip us for every good work, that all scripture, even the uncomfortable parts that we have a hard time embracing, it has been breathed out by God. And I like to remind us every single once in a while, church family, God is not embarrassed by one word that's in this book. These are his words. These are his words and this is what he's given us for the building of his church. So all scripture speaks the word of God, it shapes the worship of God, and it sustains the work of God. It's sufficient. 
It's authoritative and it's strong and it is all that we need. Christ has promised that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not overcome it. But he does not build the church that is not built on the rock solid foundation of his word. All scripture sustains the work of God. It's enough to complete us and equip us. I want us to turn in our Bibles here for just a moment to uh, John chapter 15. We're going to look at verses 7 through 11. And these are part of Christ's final words to his disciples before he goes to the cross, before he ascends into heaven, and somewhat of his, his parting words with them here in this moment. And, and, and John 15, I think Jesus gives us the picture of what it looks like to be a church that is rooted in the word of God, that trusts that it's complete and it's sufficient. John 15, seven through 11, Jesus says, if you abide in me, so this is conditional. If, if we do this, he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. There's so many words in this passage that resonate with us. Love and joy, things that every single one of us want to experience And Jesus says we experience these things to the full. We abide in him in the full when we're abiding in the word of God. We experience his love as we're keeping his commandments, as we're living in his commandments, as we're embracing his word, and as we're enjoying his word. And so so I'm gonna let these these few verses here this morning be what shapes our response together as a church. Because again, this is where we wanna take this doctrine of, of what we believe about the Bible, and we wanna bring it down just a street level. What does that actually mean for our lives? We're gonna let these words of Jesus shape our response this morning. First, Jesus shows us we need to abide in his word. Very simply, abide in his word. What's that word abide mean? Just dwell in his word. Live in his word. Set up your tent in his word. Make your home in his his word. And we, we hit on this back at the beginning of the year, but man, we're living at a time, praise God, like it has never been easier for us to do this. It's been made so easy for us. Like we don't even have to read the Bible for ourselves anymore. We can download an app and drive in the car and somebody else will read it to us in a, in a different accent that sounds way cooler than us rednecks, right? I mean, it's, it's amazing. We can have other people read that. We can li- just live in this word, dwell in this word. It's been made so simple for us. And, and, and how, many, how many of you in this room, I'm just curious, are, are readers across the board? Like you like to read. I love to read. And I'll read anything. I love, I love history. I love biography. Every once in a while, I'll pick something up that I'm not interested in just to see if I might become interested in it. But I love to study doctrine, theology. I like sports history, in particular, military history. And, and I could just live in, in books. Like my, my perfect, I love to introvert. I'm like, man, give me like a fire and a chair and a book and no people for like two weeks. I'd be the happiest person on planet Earth, right? Like that just, that's what I love to do. I love to, to read and just immerse myself in, in books. But there's no other book outside of the word of God that will make us complete and equip us for every good work in Jesus Christ. Even Christian books, we gotta be careful because we can get to a place, if we're, not, if we're not careful, we'll spend more time in what others have said about the word of God than what the word of God actually says. We have to be very, very careful. Charles Spurgeon said this, I love it. He said, visit many good books, but live in the Bible. Live in the Bible. We abide in his word. Second, pray his word. 
pray his word, that this is, I think, maybe one of the most overlooked, simple spiritual disciplines that we can do. Just, I'll just be honest this morning. You know, prayer is, is not always a strong suit for me. I struggle sometimes to stay focused. My, my sin is that I'm a very proud, uh, independent, self-sufficient person. I like to think I can do things on my own. And oftentimes I'm guilty of not running to the Lord until I need something from him. And, and, and so it's just really, really easy. And part of it for me is that sometimes I struggle to know what to pray and, and how to pray. And one of the most simple disciplines that you and I can develop is learning to pray the word of God. When we don't have a word to pray, pray the word that you already have. Open up the Psalms. And it's, it's, it's just so simple. You could go back to Psalm. I just flip back to Psalm 30. I opened this completely at random here this morning. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. How many days have you just needed a prayer exactly like that? Like you're struggling and you're suffering and you're hurting. And God's given us the words right there. Maybe that's all you have that morning is just to pray it over and over and over again. Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. Oh, Lord, be my helper, because I need you right now. When we don't have words to pray, pray the words that we've been given. Third and fourth, we'll do these together. Live his word and obey his word. Live and obey his word. Jesus says here, if my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, it'll be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Jesus was, we looked at the Great Commission these last several weeks. Jesus did not give a Great Commission that says, go into all of your homes and sit in a circle and get smarter from the Bible every single week. Go into the world and make disciples. That's fruit bearing, multiplying, more people becoming followers of Christ, more people growing and maturing in Christ. Yes, we need to root our hearts and minds in the word of God, but eventually it's what we have to understand. It's not truly taking its root in our heart unless it's bearing fruit in our lives. And one of the greatest ways that we stoke the fire of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to simply be obedient to what God has commanded in his word. Now, it's one thing to know in our hearts that God loves and in our minds that God loves a cheerful giver. It's an entire thing differently to be a generous giver. And, and we know, and we, we know these principles that Jesus has taught us. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Yet, yet how many of us with time, treasure, talent, man, we just want to hold on. It's mine. It's mine. It's mine. It's mine. We know it in our heads. Do we believe it in our hearts? Are we bearing fruit with it in our lives? And then last, very simply, we get to enjoy his word. He says, enjoy this word. He says, these things I have spoken to you. Why, why has he spoken all these things? Why have I spoken all these things? Why has Jesus taught us all of these things? So that you'll be miserable and life will be hard. So that you won't experience anything fun in this life because we all know God is anti-fun, right? No smiles in church, smack you down. We know that's how God is, right? No, no, no. He says that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be what? Full. God is not against your joy. God wants you to experience joy to the fullest. That's why he's given us his word. He's, he's loved us so much that he's shown us, this is what it looks like to walk in right relationship with me. This is what it looks like to be reconciled to me. And it's when we're walking with Christ, we're living in Christ, we're abiding in Christ, we're dwelling in Christ. He commands us to do these things. God's word never commands us to do what's not going to bring our greatest joy. But sometimes it's a struggle, right? Sometimes it's a struggle. The Bible can be difficult to understand at times. We can struggle to understand how it really speaks to our lives and applies to our lives. And so sometimes it's just, it feels a lot easier to say, you know what, this is really not for me. I think I'm gonna check out on this. Um, 
Several years ago, I, I, Emily and I had been married for just a couple of years, and uh, it was not long after my, my dad passed away at the end of 2011. I went through a season where I really, I just struggled to sleep at night, and I was walking through some uh, anxiety and, and depression and things like that. And I'd never struggled with sleep before, but I was really struggling to sleep for, for a period of a few months, and I uh, didn't want to take any kind of medication. Like, I've, I've, I've always, no, I'm, not, I'm not against that or anything like that, but I just, I didn't want to create any sort of dependency with my sleep, and so I was seeking out some natural remedies. And um, so I was talking to a friend one, one evening when we were at church, and she was like, hey, you should drink just try like some chamomile tea. And I like drinking teas. I like green, green tea and mint tea and Earl Grey and, and a bunch of different teas I like to drink. And it wasn't really a chamomile fan. And, and, uh, and so I went to the store and I got some and came home. I was like, cool, hopefully this works. And you know, got, got some good testimony about this from some others. And uh, so I got the, the tea kettle going. I poured the water and I dipped in the tea bag, cools off a little bit. I take a sip and I spit it right back out. I was like, that's disgusting. I'm not touching one more drop of that. So I, I dumped the cup out. I was like, forget that. And I'm, I'm not going back to it anymore. Well, then a uh, couple more nights, like I'm still wrestling and I, I couldn't go to sleep. And so I had a, a night a few nights later that's, um, you know, I, I'm, I laid there for, for about, you know, 15, 20 minutes and, and fell asleep for a second, but then woke back up and then was awake for two, three hours. Like, all right, fine. So I go in the kitchen and I make one more cup of it. Like, I'm, I'm going to force it down. I'm just gonna, gonna force it down. So I make, same thing, I make the cup of tea and, and get the tea bag in there. And I just, for the next you know, 20, 30 minutes, I was just reading and just a little bit at a time, just kind of trying to hold my nose and force it down. Well, well, sure enough, I started feeling a little drowsy. And then I went to bed. And fortunately, I, I had the day off the next day. I slept for like 10 hours like a level four inception, you know, I just, just disappeared and, and, and woke up and I was like, man, that, that, that did the trick on me. And, and, and so Emily comes home later that night and I'm like, yeah, well, I was like, I finally drank the tea last night. It, it knocked me out. I was like, I hate it. It's disgusting, but whatever, it's helping me sleep. Well, then something started to happen over the next few weeks. As, as I drank the tea at night and my sleep was starting to improve and uh, is, is that I got to the place I was like, I actually started looking forward to that tea at night. And, and, and slowly my palate started to change. And, and I wasn't just tolerating it anymore. I was actually starting to enjoy it. Because what was happening to me over time is I learned to enjoy this. I learned to anticipate it. I learned to love it as my palate changed because I learned what was happening is that I could enjoy this because it was bringing rest to my body. And the same thing happens with scripture. Is, is that sometimes because of our sin, like we struggle to understand it. And so we'll just kind of tolerate it. But over time, what happens is, is God conforms us more to his son, Jesus Christ. We move from tolerating it to enjoy it because in the same way that that tea brought rest to my body, we find that the word of God brings rest to our souls. And so we, we just bring ourselves to this word, not understanding it, maybe not totally getting what it's saying, but just trusting and believing. This is doing something in the deep wells of my soul that I can't do for myself. Church has just always been my prayer, my testimony for our church family that every single one of us at every single level of, of our church, we would first be, be founded on the authority of this word, but that we wouldn't just submit to this authority out of a begrudging submission, but we would truly love and enjoy this word. Our testimony would become the exact same testimony of St. Augustine, who heard just a snippet of the word of God when he was living in sin, living in the world, he heard a snippet of the word of God through the song and lullaby of a little girl. And his testimony many years later was very simply this, Lord, you struck my heart with your word and I loved you. And so Father, that's our prayer this morning is that you would strike our hearts with your word so that we would love you and enjoy you and know you, that we would not see the teaching of your word, the doctrine of your word as burdensome. We would not see it as cold. We would not see it as disconnected from the reality of our lives. But Father, you would speak to us through your word. 
And that as you speak to us, as we abide in your word, as we dwell in your word, as we live in your word, we would be people who enjoy your word because to enjoy your word is to enjoy you. Help us to trust in its power. Help us to trust in its sufficiency. Help us to trust in its authority. God, use your word here to shape your people so that we can be more like your son, Jesus.